Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on my own show. <laughs> Both Robert Lee Yates, Spokane serial killer, and Bill Champagne drove this highway in pursuit of crime. Bill Champagne drove from Spokane to Bellevue to pass counterfeit $100 bills. He got as far as, uh, what is that town? Uh, Moses Lake, something like that. And uh, stopped at Perkins Cake and Steak, and his wife passed a very inferior $100 bill and got arrested. <laughs> and that, as they say, tells the tale. Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane sewer killer, would drive the same road because he was in the, uh, what, the National Guard or uh, Army Reserves or whatever the hell they call it. And he would drive from Spokane over to Pierce County where he would murder somebody else. And then he would drive back and murder somebody else over on this side. So this, uh, this road is of great historical significance, not only for archaeology, but uh, also because criminals... Now, the, uh, the state patrol has a clever plan for uh, this area of road. They set up a speed trap around uh, uh, whatever the town is. <laughs> yeah, that's farther uh, east of here. And uh, they just wait for people to speed, and then they catch them and search their cars to find all manner of contraband. They won't find all manner of contraband, however, in this Maserati, except for me and my brother and Jordan Bear, who looks highly suspect to me. Now, the one thing I promise you, and you're going to get it today, is my brother is... Uh, He's not looking too, he looked a little tired today. He's been up for about three days cleaning fish in Idaho. He came back. By strange coincidence, he happens to be one of the, at least in the opinion of some, one of the uh, leading experts on the subject of trade with China. Reason for that being, to the best of my memory, and you can probably correct it, is years ago when the Earth was young and Steve was still rising for the planet and dinosaurs were roaming in Sino, uh, one of uh, my brother's clients, correct me if I'm wrong on his stand, is shipping and all that. Wasn't he uh, like a fire, uh, wanted to buy some fireworks in China and uh, wanted to do trade with China and they said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and my brother said, let me think of a way there must be a way. And so he reads the, the law, the uh, frozen asset law about China, and discovers a little-known paragraph in the law that says, you know, <laughs> if, if they're just uh, bringing some stuff, hi, puppy, there's a great pit bull dog, white one like the one I used to have, just sniffing me now. Am I right on this story so far, Stan? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, there's yeah. been no trade with the PRC since 1950 when they were now took over until 1979. I bought the first Chinese vessel to America in 1979 for the port of Seattle and the first U.S. flagship to Shanghai 30 days before. 
And as I recall, wasn't there there was concern that an American corporation might want to seize the ship because of all the money that was lost back at the time of the revolution. But my legal opinion was endorsed by the president and the attorney general of the United States, and most importantly by the federal judges uh, in Seattle where I brought the first Chinese ship in. So there was no effort to attach, and the trade started that day, and still flourishes. I remember that weekend well. I think one of our cousin's daughters was getting married that weekend. That's not me, that's somebody else, so it looks nice. <laughs> uh, I also found the yeah, of the U.S. China Clean Energy Forum, which is a bilateral uh, citizens group from China and the U.S. that recommended to the presidents of the two countries uh, what ended up the CERC uh, program uh, signed by uh, Obama, President Obama and President Hu for joint research in clean energy. That worked out well? Yes, very well. Very well. So there we were, and I was holding my brother's hand while he was sweating his way through the weekend while one of our cousins was getting married. And no one sees the ship, and uh, everyone thought that was dandy. And so now i got to ask the uh, $24 billion question. What what is the deal? Oops, excuse me. What's the deal on this trade war with China? What what exactly does it mean, and what's going on? It is a uh, classic example of the many problems we're having with the current president of the United States. What's the uh, what's the problem with China? So well, with us, uh, tariff man, which is what I call Mr. Trump. Uh, he imposes billions of dollars worth of tariffs on the Chinese for a trade war. But the, the ridiculous thing is that price is paid for that tariff by consumers in the United States, not by the Chinese. When they sell the goods, the consumer is the one who pays, and that's it. So the Chinese aren't too upset about this. No. No, <laughs> not at all. And the real tragedy is, if you believe in climate change, which our current president does not, that we're the only nation in the world that's not a member of the Paris Accords. But under President Obama, there were three detailed agreements with China. Together, the two nations, China and the United States, are 50% of all greenhouse gas emissions on Earth. And the theory was that those 50%, that those two nations, could do a joint program, then the rest of the nations would fall in line and we solve that problem, hopefully. Uh, President Trump has ignored and not abided by any of the three agreements. As you know, he doesn't believe in climate change. We're the only nation in the world that's not part of the Paris Accords. Well, that makes things rather challenging for our relationships with other countries, I would imagine. Yes. Uh, he likes to fight. Uh, whether or not there's a reason to. <laughs> well, some and people have that personality. They like to fight. You know, it's interesting. We go back. Uh, I started doing business in China in 1974. And China was viewed then as a great opportunity. 
for all America and all other nations to invest there, to sell goods there, to have stuff manufactured there, and so on. Uh, and China has moved under Trump from an opportunity to a competitor to an enemy. <clears throat> Not because of anything they've done, but they've progressed, as we always have, too. We're the two largest economies in the world, and instead of cooperating, he's picking a war with them, just as he did with our NATO countries and many other friends in Canada. Um, is there any benefit to America, as you can see, trade-wise for many of these? Well, it particularly hurts the state of Washington, uh, where China was their largest trade partner. Uh, not just for Boeing aircraft, uh, but Starbucks for all kinds of things here. And uh, the tariffs have hurt. There's a lack of trust now. Uh, when President Nixon did the Shanghai communique with Kissinger, uh, every president, Republican or Democrat, has followed that uh, precedent. There's one China. They will all abide by the Shanghai communique, except Mr. Trump, when he became president, questioned the Shanghai communique, questioned whether it was one China, questioned everything that every other president since Nixon had agreed to. And so, you know, diplomatic relations are very much like marriage or any other human relationship. To make progress, you got to concentrate on areas that you agree upon, because nobody agrees 100% with someone else on everything. So put aside your differences, find what you have in common, and build on those things. That's how you make progress. He doesn't seem to recognize that. I imagine it's the same within a country. I remember once heard someone say that we realize that when there's this unity between countries, you can find yourself a war. When you have disunity within your country, you can find yourself with a civil war. When you have disunity within the family or the city, you wind up having problems, division in the family, wind up having divorce. And if there's division within our individual selves, as disharmony between what we say and what we do, we make ourselves and those around us sick. <laughs> That's right. Well, diplomatic relations are just like any other human relations. I mean, countries are just a collection of humans on both sides. And so you've got to, your word must be good. You must stand by your commitments. If you can't, you say, this is unforeseen. I apologize. What can we do to fix it? Uh, you keep moving ahead on your joint interests rather than talking and spending all your time fighting with each other on the things that you don't agree upon. It's just very much like marriage. No two people that are married agree on everything. A successful marriage is where you join together with what you want for your future, for your children, what kind of values you have, and the things that you don't agree upon, put those aside. The things that you do agree upon, it makes the relationship fruitful. 
Yeah, you can't build on what isn't there. <laughs> you can only build on what is there. That's like you uh, you can measure heat, but you can't measure cold. That's right. <laughs> cold is the relative absence of heat. Uh, so that's why you, you can't measure it. Uh, you can measure the relative to heat, minus X number of degrees. And they say the evil is the relative absence of good. <laughs> it's, it's a lack of something. Uh, Burl, or, uh, over yeah. here in the studio. Uh, I have a question for your brother. You have a question. The question is? Um, has not over, the, over this last 40 years uh, the tariffs... Uh, levied by China have been dis disproportionate to what the U.S. charges. Okay, China, over the last 40 years, has China had a disproportionate amount of what? Hello? I'm having trouble understanding the Disproportionate tariffs. This, well, China has disproportionate tariffs over the last 40 years. As what? Disproportionate tariffs on us? No, not really. Uh, it's, a, it's a mutual problem, but the way to solve the problem is sit down in good faith and say, we got to fix this. What do you recommend? What do I recommend? What can I do? What can you do to get rid of this problem? And you've probably been in those situations before. I have, yeah. Yeah. Now, China's relationships around the world have altered a great deal over the past 20, 30 years in terms of their self-image, their progress, how they see themselves, their economic systems. Have you seen significant changes? Yes, I have. The, you know, China historically was not global in its intentions. It was invaded time after time after time, but whoever invaded could not manage that gigantic country and all those people without the help of the Chinese. So the Chinese, even though they were invaded, ended up running the show for whoever had done the invasion. <laughs> and they didn't waste a lot of money on wars, which we had. In comparison, we'd fought more wars than any country in the world. Uh, and that's a very expensive thing. China has not used its resources to go to war, but rather to make investments in their country and throughout the globe. Well, I remember someone said that if we got to fight with China, they could send over someone to babysit every man, woman, and child in America and still have plenty of people left over. That's right. They got a lot of people. About four and a half times our number of people. Now, uh, when was the first time you went to China? Uh, 1974, 75. And has it changed? Yes, very much so. Uh, it's moved from bicycles to sports cars. <laughs> it's got beautiful high-rise skyscrapers. They've invested very efficiently in their major cities and throughout the country. Now, when you first went to China, I remember hearing a story, you could validate that you wanted to meet with a particular individual and share your ideas, share your plan, and you were having a heck of a time getting through to him communication-wise. So you came up with a plan of talking to the chandelier. <laughs> yes, my wife was with me, and I pretended that I was writing a letter to my former boss, Senator Warren Magnuson, who was... Uh, 
in the President Pro Tem of the U.S. Senate and Chairman of Appropriations as well as the Commerce Committee. And I dictated this letter into the chandelier. <laughs> and then I wrote it out and handed it to the desk clerk at the end of the hall. Turns out that that message uh, was received by Senator Magnuson within 24 hours in his office in Washington, D.C. They must have flown it there, but I did get the appointment I wanted. <laughs> well, you were out in your jeans walking around and all of a sudden a limo pulls up and says, Mr. Mayor. Yes, yes. <laughs> Come to a meeting. And uh, that meeting was very important. I solved a major problem um, that was in the way of resumption of shipping between the two nations. So we got that solved. And in 1979, I brought the first ship, uh, Lights Brother U.S. flagship into Shanghai, and 30 days later, the first PRC flag vessel into the port of Seattle. And that started the shipping as well as the aviation. Now, some uh, some crackpot on the Internet, of course, there's lots of those, has the nerve to say that you were going to be responsible for World War III which I thought was rather rude to say my brother was going to be responsible for World War II. I don't know, some nut. Maybe it was a guy. <laughs> Maybe it was someone you used to date. I don't know. But they said it's because of this whole China trade thing that uh, you were like Skynet in the Terminator 2. You know? <laughs> you know, what are you supposed to do, fight with everybody or find common ground and move both countries ahead? Hopefully find common ground. Like any other human race. Sure. Yeah. You want it to flourish for both sides. Yeah, I've had a few relationships that I wanted to see flourish from both sides. I couldn't get them to turn the other side towards me. Yeah, <laughs> turn the other cheek. Yeah, <laughs> for both of them. <laughs> for that matter. Ah, what a, what a day in the neighborhood. So it's uh, life is full of challenges. Uh, what about our relationship? Do you have anything to do with our relationship with... What's now Russia used to be the old Soviet Union? Any international uh, trade things there at all? I think uh, that's a very complicated thing, but I think there's a history that goes way back between the Trump Organization and Russia and the Ukraine when Ukraine was still controlled by, by Russia. And you know, there's been inklings of that in the media and that Putin was supposed to get a free apartment. Putin <laughs> gets a free apartment? I can get him a reduced deal yeah. on a, a, a home for old folks in Santa Clarita. <laughs> he wants to go there. Yeah. And there's lots of I don't run. know. I think more will come out in the years ahead. Um, I don't think it's... All a good story. Well, we'll see what happens. Politics uh, makes strange bedfellows, and sometimes the bed has bedbugs. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we say? Makes a difficult situation. Now, I remember when it was said we had a serial killer in Russia. Maybe you saw the movie Citizen X. There was an HBO movie about the, the detective in Russia who was trying to catch the serial killer. A serial killer happened to be pretty high up uh, guy in the party, and 
the, the party line was we don't have serial killers in Russia. <laughs> even though you had this guy murdered. No, they don't even do that. They have none. <laughs> or as my daughter said when she he went to Russia for uh, six months, that everything here is unavailable unless you have money. Like yeah. <laughs> everything here, you get anything. A nice little kiosk of uh, vodka <laughs> and no age restriction. But my daughter, uh, bless her heart, is very is very good at languages, especially accents and dialects. So she figured out and found out what the dialect was that was most prevalent among the uh, Russian mafioso. And so that's the dialect she adopted when she was would speak to business people in Russia. No one ever gave her bad time. <laughs> she just went along with whatever, whatever she came up with. She was blessed with a uh, thing for languages. So hi there, Mark Boyer. What's uh, going on there? <clears throat> well, Matt is feverishly working. I'm listening intently. Um, I have a question for our guest. I'm, What's uh, the question? I'm uh, wondering from his perspective, what does he think our president is trying to accomplish with his uh, uh, with this trade war. What's his end? Uh, the specific specific question is: What specifically has the current administration accomplished with the current trade war? No, that's not uh, what I asked, bro. Well, that's not what you asked. I misunderstood you. What was it? I asked: What is the president's end game? What goal is he trying to reach? Oh. Uh, He's curious, he's wondering, and I don't know how you would know the answer, is what would be the administration's goal, their end game of this, the current tariff uh, situation? What's the, what, what would be their projected game is to have a good public relations position. That's it? Yeah. To look good? Substantially, I don't know what. <laughs> no one can explain it. It's hard to understand things that we don't understand. If you could explain the inexplicable... Go ahead. My well, guess is going to, into the to me that uh, Buster's restaurant to uh, relieve himself. It's, so you're stuck with Jordan and me until he gets back from going to the bathroom. Um, it <laughs> um, it seems to me that his goal uh, is uh, uh, a equitable and <clears throat> relatively equal trade balance. I mean, we import okay. significantly more from China than we export. And this isn't good for the GDP or the or America. Well, that would be nice. So I, I think what he is trying to do is to get China to recognize that if they want to sell us a bunch of crap, then they need to buy a bunch of ours. <laughs> yeah, you, you mean you mean what he'd like is uh, some fairness? Yeah, a little fairness. Yeah, yeah. When when all the president when all the presidents have taken this on the chin throughout the years because they're afraid or they don't have the business savvy to know how to accomplish such a goal. Right. Well, it's interesting as Stan was saying, and he'll be back here in a few minutes. That China doesn't isn't uh, affected by these tariffs at all. Doesn't really care because they the. Uh, Who's bearing the cost of it? The American consumer, not China. Incorrect. They got enough resources. Incorrect. China, this hurts China a lot more than it hurts America. If it's ten percent, well, if it's ten percent America, it's it's ninety percent China, and China cannot endure this. We can. Well, well, let's find out when our expert returns to the bathroom.
Because you'll know for a fact, one way or the other. So he's just he'll know. And, and, and he's not on either side, right, Mark? I haven't listened, but I'm certain. Well, as he said, it doesn't matter what administration, Republican or Democrat, the uh, goals have always been the same. And uh, uh, as he said earlier, the China could absorb this better than we could. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. He just got back from China about a month or so ago when they invited him over. First uh, non-Chinese person to get this uh, award or whatever the hell it was called, you know, just shot his gear. I'm not quite exactly sure what the award was, but it was, it was something impressive. Lifetime Achievement Award for helping China with their trade. He's always been nonpartisan as far as, uh, because he always worked when he was in Washington, D.C. He was working with Republicans, Democrats, Independents, it doesn't matter. These are all, there's a lot of more bipartisan efforts going on in those days, but even though he was working as legal advisor. Republican and Democrats nothing to do with huh? that. Excuse me, what was that? They, the Republicans and the Democrats, when he was in Washington, don't exist. And the world is polarized on both ends. I'm sorry, I couldn't follow them. Break it up here. Because the Republicans and the Democrats. Hello? Hello, yes, the. The, the Republicans and the Democrats that he worked for in the 70s are gone. Of course. And, we, and so you, you can't relate his uh, working for them to what it is to be conservative or liberal now. Yes, I think you're right. We, we can address that with him when he comes back. I think it's a very good point. Things were, there was a lot more uh, bipartisan efforts in those days. The Republicans and Democrats were much closer together. You know, as they were supposed to. And the idea is not to say, well, we're going to oppose anything the administration does. Uh, we're going to oppose everything just on principle, which was a, a problem several years ago. I always figured that I usually don't get into politics, but I just try to get things at a higher spiritual level. I always thought Obama was just a Republican with a blue tie. Like that show business. And show business, as you know, is my life. And if you're a, hey, uh, is Matt still there? How about you, Mark? Have you ever driven a Maserati? Um, no, I, I drove a 308 Ferrari. Um, oh. you know the uh, Sepulveda wash? You know, mm -hmm. between Sepulveda, Sepulveda and Balboa? Yeah. Yeah, I drove, I drove, uh, I drove that, uh, I suppose somewhere a little over 100 miles an hour through there. Well. That was fun. I've been driving this, uh, this Maserati. Got a lot of get up and go, I'll tell you that. You step on the gas with this Maserati and it take off. And it's nice though, it's so nice if I show it to you if we're on television. Because we're parked here in uh, Vantage overlooking what used to be Vantage. 
which is now water. They totally flooded the city years ago. That must have been a weird situation. I mean, uh, can you imagine living somewhere and they tell you, excuse me, uh, we're going to flood the city. You can pack up and leave now. Do you remember uh, Old Brother for uh, Without Old oh, Brother, where are, for, where are you? Yeah, yeah, with George Clooney. Clooney and the Broth Farley brothers. That was that was a great movie. That was a good movie. That's where those Cone brothers, I like them. Mm-hmm. They can come by anytime they want. And then, of course, there was Deliverance. There was what? Deliverance. Void. Uh, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, never turn your back on a mountain man. Uh, <laughs> That's my motto. Yeah, well, they were going to flood the, the basin where they were going to go, and it was their last chance to go hunting and camping. Yeah. Well, it was the same thing. Same thing here. I thought maybe Matt had a girlfriend advantage. Because I think that whatever city we mentioned, anywhere in America, Matt had a girlfriend there. <laughs> I mean, I think that's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, <laughs> you know, when Ricky Nelson did, I'm a traveling man, made a lot of stops, was inspired by Matt Allen. It wasn't born yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I had a girlfriend there. My favorite Matt Allen story, however, actually, I got two favorite Matt Allen stories that he's told numerous times on Outlaw Radio. One is the story of he's at the rehearsal for his wedding and decides to call it off. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. The other one is Matt at the Magic Castle and Orson Welles is there. And he asked Matt Allen's advice. And Matt gives it to him and helps him out. And Matt didn't really know the significance of Orson Welles. He just thought he was that guy that did the wine commercials. Old sell no wine before it's time. <laughs> That's where ignorance is bliss, I guess, because you could be intimidated otherwise. And, okay. Uh, my brother came back with a question for you, Stan. That was the Republicans and the Democrats that you worked with in the 70s. They're gone. Not all of them still still be left. Not the individuals, but the 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 philosophies that went with them. Philosophies that went with it. The degree of bipartisan cooperation. Yeah. So what you perceive is significantly different now. Yeah. Much greater partisanship. But then we have a president which has been highly partisan. It's a difficult situation. It is a very difficult situation for both sides. You know, there's all the wisdom is on one side. Wisdom comes from the two sides getting together and compromising. There's always that thing of compromising. Yeah, it's like marriage. <laughs> it's like marriage. Yeah. Ah, I think so. We got a few minutes left here. They gotta have to fill. My brother's eager to get on the road because we're gonna go fishing. He hasn't been fishing for 24 hours. Where, where are you going? <laughs> going to Loon Lake, Granite Point Park. Loon Lake, Washington. Yeah. 26 miles north of Spokane, a vacation paradise. Any, any, yourself a tree. any bluegill in there? 
Oh, hell yes. Too many. <laughs> That's all you can. Bluegill, bluegill, bluegill. Yeah. Crawdads, too. And tits, yellow-bellied tints. <laughs> you ever caught one of those? No, well, that was, wasn't that your nickname in high school? Yeah, yellow belly tits. Yes, that's what they called me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a common uh, common situation. We also have landlocked salmon, silvers, uh, coconut. Wow, good eating. Oh, hell yes. And fun to catch. Man, they're great. Uh, I the w- other. Wish you luck, yeah? Is, uh, this is kind of an interesting story. They brought in Mackinac. Now, I don't know if you know what Mackinac are. Yeah, it's a wrapper from the Pacific Northwest. That's right. Mackinac. Yeah. DJ Mackinac Jr. <laughs> uh, and uh, they only eat about once every two weeks. Well, right. Sounds, so, sounds like uh, the producer of Outlaw Radio, Lori Downey Jr. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she doesn't eat like a bird. She's like a Mackinac. <laughs> mm. uh, and uh, they brought those in, and they get big. My nephew, bless his heart, caught a 35-pound Mackinac out of the lake. Uh, they're difficult to catch, and usually if they're going to hit your uh, lure, it's not because they're hungry. It's because they're pissed off. <laughs> Man. You, know, it ir- you know, it irritates them, and so they... They go to attack it just, you know, on principle, like because they're hungry, huh. and that's how you catch them. Mackinac didn't didn't even know her. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, the other is they took some Mackinac and put them in one of the Great Lakes uh, because they had some creature in there that Mackinac is their natural predator. And uh, so they put the Mackinac in, but they messed up the, the balance of trade, or whatever you call it, ecologically. You know the, the lake. You know the, the original moniker for the Great Lakes? You may know this. What was that? The Good Lakes. The Good Lakes? The Good Lakes. <clears throat> huh. But they didn't they didn't think it was up to par with up to par. We didn't think they didn't call it great. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was just adequate lakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, it, we're it, does, it does come out to the greatest freshwater concentration. Yeah, we're America. going to one of the adequate lakes of the Washington state. <laughs> yeah. You've got to also have Deer Lake. Oh yeah, I've been there been there many times. Okay. Have you been to Deer John Lake? Uh, you been to Deer Lake? Yes, yes. I like many, Deer Lake. Many, Deer Lake's great. Many times as a child, yes. I swam in that lake. You ever been to Deer Lake, Idaho? I, I'm sure there, my residue is still uh, still on the still surface. Floating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's on the surface or not. Oh, this, hey, but, uh, by, by the way, uh, legendary Burl Bear, this time of year in the great Pacific Northwest when folks from other parts of the country in colder climes and they visit or in, in warmer climes like Southern California and they visit and they cannot believe that this gorgeous area of the United States of America exists and then they move there and then they find themselves there in October. Yeah, and then they're pissed off. Oh, then they're mad as hell. Big time. <laughs> no one warned me. Yeah, no, no one warned me <laughs> that the clouds were as low as the ground. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Hey, I was uh, 
I was at Mercer Island, I don't remember this, when they had the Arctic Blast. That was a storm came down from, yes, the Arctic. And it was a gorgeous, sunshiny day. And I'm on Mercer Island at a friend's place, and he comes running and says, you better get the hell in your car and head home. There's this Arctic blast coming down from, you know, the north, and it's like solid ice. And I'm looking out, it's this gorgeous, sunshiny day. And I go, God, is he full of crap? <laughs> so I get in my car, and I get to the freeway, and I have a choice. I could turn left and head towards into Seattle and go to Ballard, where I was living at the time. Or I can turn right and go to the DMV, which I wanted to do. So I turn right. And as I'm driving on this beautiful sun-drenched freeway, in front of me, I see what appears to be a solid white curtain. I go, what the hell is... And I hit it. And on the other side of that solid white curtain, the road was ice. Yeah. Solid ice. Fortunately, there was an exit there. I aimed my car at the exit and slid down the exit, through the intersection, into the parking lot of a motel where I got the last room available. Well, about, hey, Burl, Burl Bear, about, yeah. about what year was this? Oh, that was the same year. You had to abandon your car stand and, uh, and you somehow get home. <laughs> doesn't help. Uh, that must have been in the... Yeah, I was living there then. Early, early 80s, oh late 70s? Yeah. Because this sounds yeah. familiar. I think I was there for this. Yeah. I mean, it was horrible. I yeah. mean, it was like nothing we had ever seen before. Yeah. It, I, we, it was, I was there. I experienced this. I mean, it was it was beautiful as long as you didn't have to drive. Oh, God, it was horrifying if you had to drive, <laughs> yeah. especially when it hit. Because, like I say, it was... It was sunshine on one side of it, and then solid ice and snow on the other. And I remember my brother had to abandon his car, I think, on Capitol Hill or downtown, because there was no way. I mean, there were, there were cars littered all over the freeways. People just had to get out and leave their cars. And I was in that motel room, and there was something wrong with the TV set. 15 seconds after you turned it on, it emitted a high-pitched squeal <laughs> that you couldn't stand to hear. Uh, oh, that sounds like a Rosie O'Donnell show. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. Uh, <laughs> and so I just had to turn it off. Finally, after two days, um, uh, a friend of mine who was sleeping with one of the Seattle Supersonics <laughs> showed up at a you know, four-wheel drive blazer or something and rescued me. But it was, uh, it was a bizarre experience because there's no snow plows in Seattle. Uh, it's like they don't ever think it's going to snow. And uh, then it does, <laughs> they're screwed. I know, I know, I, I I know it's, snowing, it's snowing a lot of garbage uh, downtown Seattle these days. A lot of garbage, a lot of homeless. It's uh, really bizarre. I'll tell you, the traffic... The traffic in Seattle is worse now than Los Angeles. Oh, no, no. Last time I was there, that was years ago, it was bad. Oh, it's it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. It's even worse now. And you, I don't know who designed some of these freeway projects, but they'll have like a tunnel where the four lanes will go down to two and everything comes to a screeching halt and no one can get anywhere unless you're working for Amazon. Yeah. Then you can take the, the Amazon exit. But the rest are closed. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is we don't live there. Yes. 
nice place to visit in the summer, though. Hey, and I had lunch with Sparky Taft, former owner of KRKO. <clears throat> Derberger used to work at KRKO yeah. in Everett. Matt, uh, Matt took the and stepped away from the mic for a moment. Yeah, he was a big star at KRKO in Everett. So was uh, Robin Sherwood. And uh, KRKO and Everett still there. They uh, they're building a shrine to Matt, I think. Does <laughs> um, it have a little statue? You know, like they got that Jimi Hendrix statue. Does it have uh, lots Capitol of places Hilder. for the pigeons to sit? Yeah, they're gonna have a Matt Allen statue in Everett. Say, we're so glad he moved. <laughs> <laughs> and I miss the uh, I miss the old Parts Club uh, luncheon with uh, our old program director, Pat O'Day, and Dick Curtis, and uh, all those uh, old radio heroes that Matt grew up with because I wanted for the hospital again. Yes, well, but stay away from my, South, Pearl. Much of my proof of resilience, uh, I was out of there in a couple of days. See, I'm like Tombstone, Arizona, the town too tough to die. So, um, how like is... How's your next tome coming? How's my what? Your next book with uh, our favorite uh, Jewel Thief. My next book is entitled, is part of a three-book trilogy, and it's called American Panther. The first book is called Stealing Manhattan, and that's the story of our pal Punch's father, uh, the world's greatest gentleman thief and how he trained Punch, despite Punch's interest otherwise, in following in his footsteps and becoming the beloved uh, jewel thief uh, that we know today. Of course, he's retired from being a diamond thief. Uh, in the latest issue of Vanity Fair magazine, on sale now, wherever fine magazines are sold, uh, there's an interview with our pal Punch in the latest Vanity Fair where they're talking about a multi-million dollar uh, Pink Panther heist. And they uh, called on him as uh, an expert on the topic. So there's a great deal of commentary in the latest Vanity Fair from uh, our pal Punch, uh, Paul Blake Stanimirovic, who's kind of a regular on the show, uh, who's now become a, uh, uh, a pop artist. He's got, he did a big uh, uh, art gallery show in Dallas. In fact, he's going back to... Uh, pick up all of those old pieces. <laughs> He's going back there uh, in September. I might go down there in September to Dallas to uh, take part in this uh, exciting adventure. The, uh, it's called Psychedelic Robot. And uh, it's a lot of pop culture stuff, a lot of pop art stuff. Uh, Sean Sullivan, uh, who we've had on the show, will be there, I believe, as well. It should be quite an extravaganza. And, of course... Uh, uh, Howard Lapidus' beloved uh, widow, uh, Maria Lapidus, got hold of me the other day. And we were chatting, and she gets things together. Of course, a lot of unfinished projects that Howard was right in the middle of that uh, she wants to take care of. Bless her heart. Uh, Howard goes out to her and the kids. And out to us, too, for uh, not having him around. So uh, that's kind of what's going on here. I know we got 10 minutes more of the show, so I'm trying to think of what brilliant things I can tell you in the next 10 minutes. Well, who's uh, Do we have a guest for next week? What's that? Do we have a guest for next week? We certainly will. Uh, that'll be the 24th, and that's the, uh, the day that uh, uh, we head back from Loon Lake to uh, 
Seattle. Uh, uh, there's a new TV show uh, called Killer Siblings. And uh, they uh, called upon my vast talents uh, as a true crime commentator to record a bunch of material for them. They're doing an adaptation of my book, The Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy. And they were so thrilled and delighted, or dismayed, one of the two, that uh, they're they're actually paying my way back to Los Angeles <laughs> to uh, uh, to record more material for that show. And I just found out that I'm the special guest uh, in the first week of September on uh, uh, Crime Cafe, which is a TV show that's on the uh, new YouTube uh, channel. So uh, it'll be both video and audio that people can have the unmitigated thrill of seeing and hearing the legendary Burl Bear uh, talk about his brilliant career. <laughs> so are you, uh, are you course, back in studio next week? I'll be back in the studio not next Saturday, but the Saturday after with uh, special guest uh, Frank Gerardo Jr. Isn't that nice? All right. And, uh, uh, but I'll, I'll, have, uh, I'll, have, I'll see if I can find... Uh, of one of the uh, surviving victims of the Spokane serial killer. There were a couple survivors. All right. That, uh, he shot in the head, and they uh, they lived miraculously. But well, Ronnie Cox is thrilled with this. All right, the great and uh, the great we will talk to you later. And true crime. Hey Matt, what's next? That's right. What's next, Matt? You know. <laughs> oh yeah, it's us. And that well, right. Matt Allen is even protected him. All right, Why have a great fishing trip. We share. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. From the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio... This is True Crime Uncensored with the imaginary Burl Bear. Imaginary. About. <laughs> the following program is produced with great umbrage and despair by Magic Matt Allen. No, Hi, no that, would, that would be disdained, but uh, just seconds ago before the show began, late, I might add, uh, Mark C.G. Boyer is over there uh, answering the phone. And he said, oh, oh, Burl Berry, yeah. And uh, Burl wants you to wants to ask you why you're not answering the phone. In which I replied, why is he not here hosting the show? Like it's my fault that I'm not answering the phone when the host of the show is not here to host the show. <laughs> but being the quintessential lefty that he is, I don't expect the truth out of him. No, 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 no. I called to apologize to you. I called to apologize to you for last week when I misspoke and you were correct. About no way. In fact, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. In I fact, have, I have my brother here to validate you. I have no idea what what. The, okay, let's get to that in a second. First of all, last week on the show when you were asked if you would be here in studio, you said yes. No, you know, someone mis misspoke. Well, that, I'll be there in the studio next Saturday. That would be you. That would be you. You're the one who said yes. I would have been the one who misspoke. But <laughs> okay. you got to figure I've been under heavy sedation. I've had a quadruple bypass, yeah, a new always, heart valve. Always I can't excuse. remember any of my passwords. 
Then why? And I still then, think you're working at KRKO. Then why do you? Then why do you sound so good if you're this near death? Because I'm a true professional. <laughs> okay. Now, what what is it you want to jump into here? Uh, I, I I misspoke on more than one thing last week. No kidding. Yeah. Last week when my brother went to uh, the bathroom there at the rest stop Advantage, we were still talking about the tariffs, and you were talking about uh, the Chinese being hurt by the American tariffs on the Chinese just as we were being hurt, vice versa. And uh, uh, I think it sounded like I was giving you an argument. My brother came back. We were already off the air. And he said, oh, man, is absolutely correct. So I'm going to let him tell you you're absolutely correct. Hold on. No, I, I heard you. You are absolutely correct. Yeah, no, yeah. Of, of course. Of course. The, the, of course. Because the, he, he explained it to me quite simply. He says the consumer is the one who gets hurt financially, no matter who the country is. It could be Botswana land. It wouldn't matter. It, do, it, does, <laughs> it does matter because the only, the only time that these tariffs make any sort of sense, because I'm against tariffs, is except against China, and they. Oh, well, one second. I just dropped it on the floor. I didn't, didn't they, mean to do that. They will be dismantled anyway. I'm using my headphones here. Go ahead. I got things. Uh, to do. Hey, do you remember when uh, North Korea had a giant famine and about half the population died? No, I'm. I'm I, that was probably when you were still in diapers. Yeah. But show you how paranoid. Uh, young Chow Min, whatever the hell his name is over Kim there. Chang his dad. They wouldn't let any humanitarian aid in to help alleviate the starvation of the people because they were afraid it would lead to some sort of takeover. It was, it was much, but it's much more than paranoia. They don't care about their people. I think you're right. He doesn't. No, they the people don't. care about themselves. Yeah, but yeah, you know. It's a, it's a strange situation. It's a weird world we well, live no, in. Well, no, no, it's it's a heinous, it's a heinous socialist dictatorship, and it, it's, uh, and it doesn't it's a work. communist dictatorship, isn't it? Yes, is it North Korea communist. I I said socialist for it's a different. reason because there it's there's very very little difference. Oh, I think there's a big difference. Of course you do because you're a lefty. But please continue. With your <laughs> I'm show. a lefty. There is a difference between socialism. I mean, I'm sure you've gone to city parks. You've driven on public roads. You might use public utilities. That's socialist programs. You call the fire department. You call the police department. That's social programs. Communism, there's no, there's no uh, private enterprise. Uh, businesses, you know, no brands, no uh, private ownership of companies. That's entirely different. I wouldn't, and communism is a big failure. In case you haven't noticed, <laughs> um, even in now, I got a question. Because my brother's sitting here, I want to know how China deals with two different economic systems. Now that they've taken over Hong Kong, how do they do with two different economic systems? Not well. Right. <laughs> how do they try to? Well, it's one country, two systems. When they took it over, they pledged to let it have its own system. What the, the demonstrations are about now is they want to be able to extradite people from Hong Kong and try them in China. Ooh. It's an extradition issue, and that's what they see about. So when, uh, I got a flashback question. When you were 
negotiating trade deals or helping negotiate trade deals between the United States and China. Did the human rights issues ever come up? Um, no. No. He's kept that off the table? Yeah. It was, uh, we were putting factories in, and the question was, when did you get paid, and when did the startup of the factory occur? So it was just business is business. Business is business. You gave them the business. There's some website back somewhere that Mark Boyer that says that my brother's responsible for World War III. Kind of like Skynet, you know, Terminator 2. <laughs> but I hope that's not true. That would be a hell of a legacy. Where I am right now, I know you're fascinated to find out as I pursue the scene of the crime. I am at a outside a business that has the catchy title, Pizza and Ice Cream. Now, that's one hell of a food-combining theory, but that's the name of the place. It also has another name, a secret identity, and that is Pizza and Videos. So maybe it's called Pizza and Ice Cream, maybe it's called Pizza and Videos, maybe it's called both. It's one business, two systems. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the pizza was interesting. Video is okay. And where it's located is at an intersection of Highway 395 in eastern Washington well. and Loon Lake Boulevard, I guess you'd call it. We're in Loon Lake, Washington. We're just leaving to head back to Seattle. I come back to L.A. on the 27th. A trip paid for in full by investigation uh, discovery network and the discovery networks are paying my way back to L.A. because they miss me so much. I'm doing an episode of Killer Siblings. Is there doing an adaptation of the Alaska Meal uh, Bomb Conspiracy and they have me doing commentary. Is there anyone at the network we can complain to for bringing you back? What's that, dear? (laughs) Is there anyone at the network we can complain to for bringing you back? Is anyone the network to blame? Yes, uh, for paying my way. I would say that probably the uh, executive producer of uh, Killer Sibling is probably to blame. And uh, I think Eric Metz, who's the associate uh, producer or something, uh, uh, he arranged the tickets, God bless him. So. That's a heck of a deal. Nonstop flight, SeaTac to Burbank on the 27th. Because you want me, you pay for me. I used to say that, too, when I was walking the strip in Vegas, but that's a different story. I wanted to ask your brother a question. I I was asking today if there had been a murder here at Loon Lake. Because I can recall when they were dragging the lake looking for bodies when I was younger. Uh, But I think that was a boating accident. The only time I know for sure that there was a murder at Loon Lake, Washington, is in Todd Goldberg's book, Living Dead Girl. Interesting that Todd put out a book that takes place in Loon Lake at the exact same time I put out a book, I'll have to plug my own books, uh, Headlock, which uh, climaxes, someone should, at Loon Lake. Now, I got good news for you. You do? Yep, I know you'll be impressed. We went out fishing every day, you know how many fish I caught? Uh, zilch, zero, nada, bupkis? That's absolutely accurate and correct. <laughs> First time ever in my history of fishing at Loon Lake that I did not catch rainbows, I didn't catch 
silvers. Nope. I caught a couple sunfish and uh, maybe a case of pneumonia. Now, my brother, who leads a charmed life, <laughs> is minding his own business, sitting in the boat, lamenting the fact that we're not getting any action, when suddenly, out of the clear blue of the western sky and the azure green of Loon Lake, his pole bends like a stripper on a pole. And he goes to reel in whatever this monstrosity is, and his reel explodes with uh, the line going in all directions, a giant mess. He grabs the monofilament line in his sinewy hands and begins dragging this sea creature to the surface. It's not easy because this thing is huge and it wraps itself around the anchor rope. Well, who else but the legendary pearl bear rises to the occasion, and without falling in the lake, I managed to grab the anchor rope and pull the thing up. Well, there is this giant, enormous, huge, larger-than-life rainbow trout wrapped around the anchor rope. <laughs> With one jerk of its mighty head, it snaps the line and would have been the one that got away, except it dropped right into the net. <laughs> and so we brought this thing in. It was the biggest rainbow trout anyone that can recall ever seen come out of this lake. Well, I think you, it had been there. Murdering that bastards. was KRKO. You know, that poor Parker trout. Parker All I wanted to do it. was have a nice day. And what are you going to do? Cut it up and eat it? So you should try fishing here at Loon Lake Bart. I uh, think with your charm and personality... You'll have uh, crawdads and <laughs> catfish crawl all over you. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm Jewish. Cannot have that. So while there weren't uh, any murders directly here at Loon Lake, Washington, I am not far, 26 miles from the scene of the crime of Robert Lee Yates. Uh, and also, now this is really weird for those of you who don't know, the Riverside Killer. The Riverside Killer was a Spokane serial killer before the Spokane serial killer. Murdering women in the Riverside district of Spokane, which probably won't surprise you to find out it's aside the river. And it's about three or four women who were brutally murdered and their bodies dumped by the river. Okay. Well, those women's pictures were on the posters that, you know, they were looking for the Spokane serial killer. They caught Robert Lee Yates, but he wasn't the guy who killed him. Nope, it was somebody else, someone they called the Riverside Killer. And they never caught him until the advanced DNA, because they're, you know, getting better at that all the time. Turns out they ran some DNA tests and went, goodness gracious sakes alive, we have the person who matches this DNA in custody at this very moment for a firearms violation. And it was a woman, a woman who used to be a man. Uh -huh. After the murderer of those women by Riverside, this uh, alleged serial killer traveled to the Mystic East, where he became she and returned to Spokane. The defense statement is, I didn't kill those women. He did. The he being the person she was before she was she. 
Whether or not the jury buys that line of reasoning remains to be seen. But it's, uh, that's what happens after the body count. So they had a... Uh, it should be an interesting one. If, if you've totally changed hormonally, your brain chemistry is different, you're not the same person, are you still culpable for the crimes you committed before you became someone else? It's like if a disc jockey is on a station using one name and then he changes stations and uses a different name. Or a professional wrestler, such as Mankind, uh, Terry Funk, uh, who changes his name, uh, you know, Cactus Jack, is it, you know, responsible for the matches he won or lost? It's a very uh, touchy uh, question. I'm sure it's one you've wrestled with, Mark, in your life. Uh, yes, I've been many different people in my, uh, in my life. I bet you have. You know, the, we're we're uh, kind of like, go like Madonna. <laughs> Continually reinventing ourselves. Kind of like Matt. Matt has reinvented himself several times. With any um, success? Is he still in the room or is he off uh, doing something strange? I don't know. He may be with his computer. Uh, it's not my job. Uh, maybe on his computer. It's just so hard to tell. It's like Robin Sherwood. I bet Robin Sherwood used to work at KRKO in Everett. Mm-hmm. I think it was back when Sparky Taft owned it. And I meet Robin Sherwood. He's wearing a shark skin suit. Looks like one of the early Roman kings. And he's asking me about uh, KOL radio. KOL. And then Robin Sherwood starts getting high, grows his hair down to his butt, grows a beard down to his front, puts on a headband. Next thing you know, he's super hippie. And... Uh, program director of KOLFN. Now, some say that was criminal. He went off to India, came back, as many do. He also went to Japan, came back with a wife. Wow. Yep. And, uh, but before he was married, he used to date uh, C.B. Ager, who was the Zodiac lady. She gave the horoscope reports on uh, KOL radio. And one day... Robin shaved off his beard and cut his hair. She had never seen him without a long beard and without long hair. He looked like a 19-year-old tennis pro when <laughs> he shaved it off. And she couldn't handle it. Oh, no, you're good-looking. <laughs> he played the American bad guy in Japanese movies. He did several guest stints in the TV show Ultraman. The Japanese science fiction show. He's probably a big fan of that one. And uh, he, I can remember he, he told me about he, uh, he was playing the American bad guy in some uh, Western, I guess all Japanese Westerns. And he was supposed to uh, swear and insult uh, the protagonist after being beat up on the docks at night. And he said, well, if I really do swear in English, it'll be very obscene. He said, oh, don't worry about it. The whole thing's going to be dubbed into Japanese. Oh, okay. So they do the scene, and he lets off a stream of obscenities from beyond the beyond. And when he sees the show on TV, it's not dubbed. It just has subtitles. <laughs> ah. Oh, it's easy, really. Interesting culture. Yeah, I don't know if they have very many serial killers over there. But uh, 
it, you know, one of the problems of catching this, that big serial killer that they had in the Soviet Union, uh, they made that great uh, HBO movie, Citizen X. I don't know if you saw that one. Mm-hmm. And it was about the uh, detective who spent his career trying to catch the serial killer despite all sorts of interference from the Communist Party uh, because they didn't want to admit they had serial killers in the Soviet Union. Plus, the guy who was the serial killer was a member of the Communist Party. That made it difficult. Of course, with Nazis, it's easier to say, is this man a serial killer? Oh, 6,000, 6 million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no problem. Give him a medal. That's an interesting thing, especially when you do television programs and you sell them to Russia. For example, The Saints starring Roger Moore. If the bad guy in the English version was a, a Russian spy uh, or somehow tied in with the Soviets, they changed it, of course, when they sold it to the Soviet Union and made the guy a Nazi. <laughs> because everyone knows once you see a swastika, you know what you're dealing with. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the bad guy. And being as that Russia and the United States both fought against the Nazis, uh, it made a, a convenient change. You just had to do a little dubbing work. Uh, didn't have too much plot alteration. Just make the bad guy a Nazi instead of a Russian. And everyone lives happily ever after. So how does that strike you? See, I have a fountain of wonderful information. Most of it useless. What's that? Most of it useless. Most of it useless information. But I am a company (laughs) of creative insights into the universe. So you're some some 25 miles from where the Spokane serial killer committed one of his heinous acts. Yes, he certainly uh, did. Why don't you tell us about this lovely gentleman? Well, you got to figure that uh, Spokane serial killer Robert Lee Yates also probably murdered a transvestite hooker in Dallas, Texas. We were stationed there, National Guard. Uh, also, he was in uh, Germany and he had a trail of dead bodies there. But he was convicted, I think, of 18 homicides in Spokane and then a few more in Pierce County. He was, I think I mentioned last week, he cut a deal with the prosecutors that if he told them about where all the bodies were buried, that they wouldn't get the, you know, he wouldn't get the death penalty. Now, this was very embarrassing for the Homicide Task Force. And they said, okay, are you going to give the family some closure here by taking us to where one of the bodies is buried that we haven't found yet? And he said, yes, I will. I promise I'll do that today. So they all get in their cars, and he's given directions. And where he has them go is back to his house, back to his own home. And they had gone over, they thought, that piece of property with, you know, canvas, uh, corpse-sniffing dogs and everything. Nope. He had buried the corpse of one of his victims directly under his bedroom window. So every day he could look out that window and know that she was close to him. Well, the police and the homicide task force were just humiliated that they had missed that. But he made that deal with the prosecutor. They thought they had Pierce County on board with him. Well, he was convicted and sentenced to, what was it, 430 years in Washington State Penitentiary. 
the same penitentiary where he had been a correctional officer. And the same place he was living in Walla Walla, Washington, when he committed his first murder, which was actually some friends of my family there in Walla Walla. It was very un unpleasant and unfortunate. But then the uh, Pierce County prosecutor backed out of the deal. And uh, they sentenced him to be executed. His attorney successfully argued that he was convicted first in Spokane. And so when he's finished serving his 430 years, then Pierce County can execute him. <laughs> but you got to do things in the proper order. Well, <clears throat> now, as you probably imagine, uh, being as the next military guy, he's a model prisoner. Causes no problems. Uh, just, you know, does everything the way he should, follows all the rules. And when uh, people such as I want to talk to him or interview him or, you know, get more, he goes, why would anyone care about me? You know, I'm a serial killer, a disgusting person. You know, I don't know if he found Jesus in prison. I didn't even know the kid had been arrested. But, uh, you know, that's not unusual. Reminds me, reminds me of a story, as Pat O'Day would say. Andrew Webb one of the murderers in my brilliant book, Headshot. Uh, brought so many people to Jesus while he was in prison that when he was up for parole, his sister said, being as he's doing such a fine job here in prison, bringing people to Jesus, why don't you just keep him here? <laughs> Have him keep doing a fine job, which they did. The next time he came out for parole, even his uh, parole and the uh, prosecutor lobbied on his behalf to be released because of all the wonderful work he did for Jesus. He was no sooner released from Washington State Penitentiary than he dropped Christianity entirely of course. and wrote a very well-reviewed book on uh, Norse legends and the Norse gods formed a non-profit to bring the message of Odin to our prisoners behind bars. Which just goes to show how reliable that old Christian conversion is in prison. But he hasn't killed anybody since he's been out. That's a plus. <clears throat> That's excellent. Can you go visit him now? Uh, I haven't spoken to Andrew. His uh, nephew, Travis Webb, who appears in most of my books giving commentary, even my fictional ones giving fictional commentary, uh, if he were with us today, he'd say, see, too bad it isn't tomorrow, because I'll be with you tomorrow. Uh, he and I are getting together tomorrow in uh, Seattle at my brother's palatial estate. He wanted to know if my brother had any midget servants who would be peeling his grapes while we were working. And uh, not that I know of. <laughs> I have yet to see any midget servants peeling grapes at uh, my brother's place. Which again, you got a great deal on his house. Didn't you get your house with a guy who had a squire shop? He's asleep. <laughs> He's asleep sitting up in his chair. But I think he did get a heck of a deal. I think Mr. Squire Shops is going to a D-I-V-O-R-C-E and uh, sold the house off cheap. Nice house. The only guy I know to put a basement in the house didn't have a basement. <laughs> he I did. I have, I have dreams. Uh, if I had a house that I would dig a big giant hole and put a racquetball court in it, so yeah. I'd, I'd build. No, he didn't put a racquetball court. 
He put a basement in. Yeah, but I would dig, was, dig a big hole so that it would be underground. Oh. So, uh, I thought it was interesting to put a basement in a house that didn't have a basement. Hmm. That's pretty crafty. Well, if it's, you know, a, if it's large enough, you have, you know, you could put a theater in there. Yeah, yeah, well, not that big. Bowling alley. Well, no, but my brother has a place in uh, Stable for horses. No, he doesn't have horses. (laughs) But he has a nice place in Sun Valley uh, that I visited. Kind of looks like, you know, your usual Tapadera motor in. But uh, bless my brother's heart. My brother is my brother, and he's just like himself. He says, Pearl, I got to show you something really cool. So he takes me in, and I can see out of the left hand side of my face that wasn't totally blind then. There was a lovely Olympic-sized swimming pool. But that's not what Stan wants to show me. Ah. What Stan rightfully wants to show me that he knows will impress me is his new fishing lures. <laughs> oh, look at these new fishing lures. I just went for a buck sixty-nine at the... <laughs> You got a red wiggler over here. Yeah. And a wedding ring. And uh, what else? He doesn't tie his own top. He doesn't make his own flies? Yeah, I think he does. He's become a fly fisherman the last several years. Let me wake him up and ask him. Hey, Stan, do you make your own flies when you go fly fishing? No. (laughs) No, he's colorblind. That's right. He wouldn't know what the hell he was doing. Well, that would make for so one psychedelic his, fly. Yeah, be one psychedelic fly. We used to be so mean to my brother. He would be all ready to go out on a hot date, and he'd come all dressed up, and we'd stop and say, why are you wearing two different color socks when he wasn't? <laughs> and then he'd go back and change his socks so they were mismatched. We'd say, now you look great. <laughs> he had a, we had a very cruel sister. <laughs> Ooh, it did these horrible things. Also, we had a staircase. This should be in a, a movie. Like the spiral staircase. It came, you could hide around the corner with a rubber knife and stab your sibling to death, if, you know, when they came down the stairs. And that's exactly what my sister used to do. She'd hide behind the corner with a rubber knife, and Stanley would walk down the stairs, and she'd jump out and stab him to death. But it gets worse, Mark. Mm, what she did to me. My mother would go off shopping at the Albertsons or to ride the plastic pony. And my sister would pretend that she dropped dead. And she would lay there, motionless, on the floor, dead. Just enjoy me crying over her body. <laughs> Until my mother came home, which time she miraculously revived. Now, my brother, not to make him sound like a saint, because he's pretty perverse as a child also, he comes to me and he says, I'm not really your brother. Your brother's dead. I murdered him. I'm a zombie from outer space. And you must be my slave and do everything I say, or I will murder your parents, and then I'll murder you. Have at it. And I thought to myself, only my brother would want me to be his slave and do his bidding. This zombie full of crap. Was, uh, was your sister a fan of Harold and Maude? 
I don't know about that. I am a big fan of Harold and Maud because I was paid money to do the advertising campaign for the film. Wow. And I'll tell you something else about that. They would send out the movie to the theaters and it would come back missing scenes. Projectionists would cut their favorite scenes from the movie out of the film and keep before them. they sent the film back. Um, I remember going to see that with a full theater. There was a movie theater out here where we live, out here in L.A. Uh, that was a revival theater. Uh, there, uh, what was Lorena. And I went to see it, and I, as you know, I am slightly off. And I was the only one in the theater laughing hysterically at what was going on on the screen. It was a very funny movie. Oh, Harold I just, it just, I, I, I had an asthma attack. Oh, so funny. Yeah, it was very close. Uh, uh, what's his name? Almost said Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton. Uh, oh, what's his name? The weird guy. Yeah, my mind just went blind. Oh, man. See, there it goes. Senility strikes at an early age. That's wow. the problem with having major surgery. What movie were you, were you referring to? I'm talking about Harold and Maude, but the guy was also in The Deer Hunter. Christopher Walken. Oh. Christopher, Christopher Walken is great in Harold and Maude. Uh, when, uh, Genevieve, Genevieve Bujol has yet to send me a thank you note. The uh, opening scene, you know, where he hangs himself, and his mother yeah. walks by and says, please clean up your room. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a great, great film. Uh, and, when, when, uh, he, when he gets the lotus and, get, and starts the, the, the uh, blowtorch and turns it into a hearse. <laughs> who did we see? Oh, we were in, uh, years and years ago, in New York, and my daughter recognized Jessica Tandy. Now, for a, like, seven-year-old girl to recognize Jessica Tandy and go up to her and go, Oh, Miss Tandy, I'm one of your biggest fans. <laughs> Pardon me, have an autograph. That made Jessica Tandy's day. Also in England, my daughter was in England. She's in a cafe. And who else is there? Our close personal friend, Robert Downey Jr. And she goes up to Robert Downey Jr. and very politely asks for an autograph. And uh, he writes her note, Anaya, you sure are cute. Signed, Robert Downey Jr. Little did we know that years later, I would be on the advisory board of Writers and Treatment, founded by Leonard Bushell, who's been a frequent guest on the show, and his best pal, Robert Downey Sr. <laughs> and uh, Leonard's actually in several Robert Downey Sr. motion pictures, including two tons of turquoise to, or two tons of topaz to, anyway, whatever it was called. Yeah, it's a strange movie. But then again, what do you expect? Uh, next week, uh, Frank C. Gerardo Jr. will be joining us live in the Light of the Lounge, and I'll be there as well. That'll be exciting for everybody. I did some checking on our, our programs that we have on the air, Mark, uh, yeah. that are downloaded from uh, iTunes. You can get our show on iTunes and Anchor FM and Spotify, 
uh, all those services, about 12 different services that you can listen to our program. Excellent. So I was looking to see what were the most popular, the three top shows. And uh, much to my surprise, mm-hmm. number one, well, the bullet, Heart Blown Open, interview with, uh, uh, what's his name, the Buddhist monk, Dennis Jungpo, uh, what's his name? That's number one with a bullet, almost 5,000 downloads in the last uh, couple weeks. Number two, Leonard Bouchel, former uh, drug smuggler and uh, drug dealer who does the Real Recovery Film Festivals and founded Writers of Treatment. Number three with a bullet, Frank C. Girardo with Burned, his latest book about the uh, fireman, firefighter, who is also an arsonist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's an occupational hazard. That was, that uh, comes in that number was three. the three. Oh, uh, Kevin Sullivan, I think, is tied to number two with, I don't think I'm going to write any more books about Ted Bundy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the movie Backdraft was uh, essentially about a fireman who was uh, creating these fires. Oh, Backdraft. Yeah, but he was doing it for a Backdraft profit. too. Yeah. Did you know that? There was what? A Backdraft 2 uh, sequel? I seriously doubt Ron Howard was involved. I'll tell you the other one. There was a sequel to Hollow Man. The start, original starred Kevin Bacon. Yeah, it was, it was okay. It's kind of like The Invisible Man. Well, it was just a remake on. of The Invisible yeah. Man. It was, yeah, it was okay. Now, here on the DVD box for <laughs> Hollow Man 2 has this big selling point. In big letters it says, See two invisible men fight. <laughs> Think about that one. Oh, uh, John. See two invisible men fight. I'm Tracy. John Ritter did a movie where there was a that just se- cracked me up. So I had to rent the film. Oh, uh, uh, John Ritter did a movie uh, years ago uh, where there was a scene that's in the dark. And it's basically two uh, glow-in-the-dark condoms fighting. It's very funny. Oh, with the glow-in-the-dark condoms? Yes. <laughs> I remember the glow-in-the-dark condoms. <laughs> yeah. And that's all you see are the two condoms, and they're, they're fighting. That's all you see are the two condoms, yeah. yeah it's very that was fun. a very inspirational film. Made me want to go out and buy some day-glow paint and a condom. <laughs> Oh. Glow in the dark condom. I remember Naked Gun, the guy had a full body condom. Uh, yeah, they both were wearing them because they were having safe sex. That makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, if, yeah, you know, if you're, uh, the uh, Oh, I also got to mention that in Hollow Man 2, not only did you get to see two invisible men fight, it was supposed to take place in Seattle, but of course it wasn't filmed in Seattle. No, of course. It was filmed in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. I mean, how much of uh, NCIS is filmed in, you know, Valencia? But, uh, whoops, hold on a second. Hold on, I, I, I dropped my earpiece here. Not my earring, just my, my earpiece. They're but supposed to be driving all point. over Washington, you know, the, you know. Uh, there's a plot point in the movie where they have to catch the, the uh, Edmunds Ferry, and they have everything backwards. Oh. He's going to try to catch a ferry to Edmonds from Seattle. <laughs> and I hate to break it to you, but it doesn't work that way. It goes the other way. You go to Edmonds, 
to catch the ferry to go to Bainbridge Island or some other island if you want to. Little Hawaiian Islands. But you don't go catch a ferry from Seattle to go to Edmonds. But if you're looking for an invisible man, that's a good place to look for him. Mm. Now, my brother used to live on Bremerton. I think there's been murders there. I know there's lots of true crime writers live in Bremerton. Uh, Greg Olson, I think, lives uh, near Winslow. And uh, probably you. several more. Oh, uh, Jack Olson, one of the world's greatest true crime writers, was living, I believe, on Bainbridge Island when he passed away. And the question was, what happened to his collection of books? Well, I found out. Same thing that happened to mine when my mother passed away. You're not, you're not even thinking about those things when your parents passed away, like my mom's collection of my books. They wound up for sale from some estate sale somewhere. Uh, and, of course, the really bizarre story is after my mother passed away, it had been a few years, my daughter wanted to order a copy of my book, Headlock, which, of course, the latest version is from Wild Blue Press. She was looking for this had to come out yet. She would be getting the original version for Northwest Publishing, which has got smaller type, and the Wild Blue Press version is better. Anyway, she orders it from Amazon.com, orders a copy of the book. And when it arrives, she opens it up, and it's autographed by me to my mother. <laughs> So the book that my daughter got that she bought from Amazon was the book that I gave to my mother when the book was published. And so we got the book back by strange, divine, whatever. And that's a true story, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not making that up. Well, no one we would doubt your veracity there, Burl. What's that? No one would doubt your veracity. No one doubts my veracity, except Matt occasionally. But he forgets that I'm the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, dedicated to the truth, wherever it may lead. Uh, well, and if I don't know, like where it leads, that's just too bad for me. I'm, I'm, ser yeah. I have serious doubts, sir, because I've never seen you and Howard. Yes, fifteen. Minutes. I've never seen What's you and that? Howard in the same room at the same time, which is why you're imaginary. And since Howard has passed, I'm not sure you, you, you are you. Well, I may not be me. I went to visit my ex-wife, who has Alzheimer's. Oh. Went to visit her in the rest home. Well, she won't, re she won't remember how much she hates you. <laughs> That's right. She does remember how much she hates me. <laughs> she, uh, she said, you really should meet my husband, Burl. You have a lot in common. <laughs> in fact, he has a ring exactly like yours. I finally took out my ID to show her that, indeed, I was Burl Bear. She goes, oh, I don't know. Little paper is the afternoon. So uh, we're heading back now. Gonna get in the car, leave uh, Loon Lake Pizza and Ice Cream, also known as Loon Lake Pizza and Video, and uh, head back to my brother's palatial estate in Seattle. I'll be there for a couple of days. I got to see Travis Webb tomorrow, and then on the 27th, uh, Killer Siblings and that the Discovery Networks flying me back to Burbank, and in September I'll be uh, doing uh, more recording for their version of the Alaska mail bomb conspiracy. Ah, so and next week, uh, Frank Gerardo joins us. What are we going to chat about when, uh, with Frank uh, in tow? What's that? What are we talking about next week? What am I, uh, next week? 
Well, so we'll review Frank C. Gerardo's brilliant career and how Arson has been very good to him. I see. And we'll discuss the the art of, uh, shall we say, milking sources, developing sources that you can trust and trust you within the law enforcement and judicial branches of our government. So when you go to do a true crime book, you get cooperation. So a lot of people I found out listen to uh, our radio show here, True Crime Uncensored, because they are very interested themselves in becoming true crime writers. And they want us to share the secrets, you know, on how, how to make the big bucks that we make, how to be rolling a dough. I mean, I can't think of any career more rewarding than being a true crime writer, than being a disc jockey on an AM station and pull the boat. So uh, that should give you an indication right there of uh, what a brilliant career you have ahead of you. Don't quit your day job. <laughs> I made the mistake of quitting my day job. That's just because I didn't want to get any more social diseases. I see. And what's with you, Mark T.G. Boyer? Oh, I'm uh, having loads of fun yakking with you. I'm looking forward to day, today's silliness on true, on Outlaw Radio. Uh, I had a, is Frank Hagen coming here today? I don't think Frank will be coming back. Uh, Frank called the other day. We had a great conversation. What a talented man he is. And uh, he was talking about some new TV shows he's pitching and doing this and doing that, and and how uh, he hopes Matt gets a good therapist. And uh, after that, it was fine. We had a good time. Uh, you've got about uh, seven minutes before the show's over, and I have about run out of things to talk about. Well, how Let's about how question. about we we change focus and talk about your upcoming project with the world's greatest or the world's second greatest diamond thief. Oh well, yes. That that is a that is a double whammy. We have four-time Academy Award winner uh, who produced the movie Ray wants to do a series of films based on my trilogy, forthcoming trilogy, American Panther. The first book of the series is called Stealing Manhattan, and it details, among many other things, the most audacious multi-heist in the history of American crime. Over $1 billion retail value in diamonds, gold, precious gems. And you never heard about it because they all got away with it. And uh, I had to keep my mouth shut about a lot of this so we made sure the statute of limitations was up. And if I was a nice patient boy, they would share everything. And when I say share everything, I mean it. I know more about the Pink Panthers and Interpol. <laughs> and I can call BS on all manner of things from our crime-fighting pals. They say, oh, there's 600 Pink Panthers. No, on a good day there were six. Most of them are dead. Two of them left. I know one of them personally. Uh, it's the same old story of Fight for Love and Glory. When... Uh, the protagonists of the true story of stealing Manhattan were stealing Manhattan. Uh, the major case, case squad was calling it the Yugos, the Yaks, uh, the Yugoslavians, this giant crime ring. They're doing uh, supermarkets. They're doing ATMs. They're doing impersonations of Jackie Mosin. Uh, no, they weren't. But it sure sounded good. And we've got alerts out to all 
48 states <laughs> to be on the lookout for Yugoslavians. That's a bunch of nonsense. But uh, they did manage to arrest our pal Punch. Of course, he wasn't using that name. He was using the name Randy Gerber, who was married to, uh, what's her name? Uh, yes. Who was married have, to Richard we, we Gere. Have, we have picture of her. We have pictures of that. Oh, she was cute. She was seriously cute. Yeah. What's her name? What's her name? Refresh my memory. Oh. She's married to Richard Gere. Was she also married to Billy Joel? No, no, no. I thought her name was Paula. Let me look. Am I conflating two different Foxy Mamas? Yes, you are. Uh, she was not, the, the girl you're thinking of was uh, on uh, Law & Order. On Law & Order? Yes, who was married to Richard Gere. No, 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 no. Christy Brinkley. No, this is no, she wasn't. He wasn't married to Christy Brinkley. Richard Gere. No, uh, pa, uh, uh, um, Punch was not married to Christy Brinkley. No, no, Punch wasn't married. Yeah. No, Richard Gere. Yes. Was and Randy Gerber were both married to the same person, but not at the same time. Hmm. Just to make that perfectly clear, but Punch used uh, Randy Gerber's partner's name, Paul Montana as an alias and dated Paul Montana's wife <laughs> who went along with it. I know it's a strange, strange very world. Well, my brother is now sitting in his Maserati. Did I mention that my brother has a Maserati? Yes, and you got to drive it even though you don't have a license. I've been driving his Maserati. The fact that I'm half blind and don't have a driver's license. Uh, Carrie Lowell, is that what you're thinking of? No. Well, she also has a line of cosmetics. Uh, Alexandria Silva. No, 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 God. You're I'm circling Pluto. No. Richard Gere was married to her. Randy Gerber is married to her now. Mm. So, and she's good looking. Well, there's only so is Richard Gere, there's but he didn't marry himself. Cindy Crawford. Hey, uh, what's up next, Mark? Hey, Burl. Yep. Ah, uh, just out of curiosity, do you know what's up next? Yes, Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lighten Up Lounge on AllenRadioLive.com. Excellent. Thank you very much. We're we'll, uh, looking forward You're to welcome. seeing you. I'll be there in person next week. And you will no longer be imaginary. Yep, I'll see you then. All right. Bye. Bye.